you have your Bibles and you want to get them out, uh, we're starting a new series this week, and we're in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appeared, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the, first, the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the Son of God, but the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with all the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay attention, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and doing of his word, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Passing the baton to me this morning. Thank you. As Ryan already said, we are starting a series. It's going to be an outstanding look, a study of the book of Hebrews. I'm super excited about it, and so I want to start this this message off today by giving you a couple of amazing facts about this book. There's a lot that we don't know, including the author. We don't have any idea who the author of the book of Hebrews is. It's a mystery. There are a lot of considerations for who it might be. Some think it could be Barnabas or Silas or Priscilla or Aquila, even Apollos, but we don't know. It's a mystery. I love what third century uh, theologian Origen said, he said it this way, he says, only God knows for certain who wrote this letter. It's an amazing, amazing letter, or amazing book. The central theme of, of Hebrews centers around capturing a vision of the eternal preeminence of Jesus Christ over all things. And so, you know, I love that word preeminence, that's why I, I, I chose it, the Bible speaks of it, but preeminence really means Superiority or supremacy, dominion and authority, all this given to Jesus. And so the key statement for today and 
probably will serve us well for the rest of this series, is that Jesus Christ is eternally preeminent over all things. That's really the message of the book of Hebrews. Another amazing fact is that the book of Hebrews isn't a, a traditional letter as we've you know, come to know letters from the New Testament writers, but rather it's a sermon. It's, it's a homily. And the writer of Hebrews seems to be writing to encourage a, a small group of Christians in the Jewish community who are scared to death because they are being persecuted for their faith. So from the very beginning of this sermon, the writer seems to be speaking words of encouragement that most likely would be to this small group of, of struggling Christians in the, in the Jewish community who are being persecuted under the Roman rule of, of Nero and by their fellow Jewish countrymen in the community. The introduction of this sermon, which, which we'll cover today, is, is, is meant, it's intended to, to grab the listeners from the very first statement, and it does, because it's unique. Because the writer seems to be writing as if God himself is speaking. Unlike the rest of the Gospels and the epistles where you find the preparatory statement and as it is written or it is written, you don't find that in this book at all. And so this fact alone would have demanded the, the attention of the audience because there's a very unconventional way of writing to present God as the speaker think that's interesting. We're going to have a great time in this book. I've titled our message today, The Ultimate Promise Keeper. The Ultimate Promise Keeper. I was sitting back this week and I was studying this passage, reading over it, just marinating it in it in my early morning prayer time. And this thought occurred to me, it just kind of smacked me right in the middle of my head, man. I, and I couldn't believe it when, when it happened. And so I started racing back through my childhood, all the way back to, to you know, as far as I could remember, all the way up to present day. And I, and I was struck by, by this truth. And so I picked up the phone to call my dad just to be sure that I wasn't off, you know. And I I said to my dad, you know, by the way, my dad and I, we have this, we have a cool relationship. I kind of like to greet him like formally sometimes. I'll say, I'll call him, I'll say, good morning, my father. And he'll say, good morning, my son. You know, I kind of like that. That's pretty cool. But this morning I called my dad. I said, I said, good morning, my father. He said, good morning, my son. I said, dad, I, I have this question for you. And I said, you know, it occurred to me that you have never lied to me. In my whole life, not one time, and you've never broken a promise to me that I know of. And my dad said to me, my typical my dad fashion, he says, he says, well, that's because I haven't lied to you intentionally in any way that I know of, you know. And I, and I thought in that moment, I said, you know, my dad has been for me the model of an incredible promise keeper. He's kept his promises in everything that he's promised me. But listen, my, our heavenly father 
is the ultimate promise keeper. You see, as honorable as, as my dad has been and his ability to, to keep his promises to me, it pales in comparison to the track record of our Heavenly Father. Because although I can say my natural father has never broken a promise to me, I'm sure that at some point in his life, he's probably let somebody down. Maybe there was a promise that he made that he couldn't keep. At some point in his life, he couldn't follow through. But listen, the promises of our Heavenly Father are immutable. He always keeps his promise. I love that word immutable. It means he can't change. He can't lie. No, Scripture tells us that, that God made this promise to Abraham. And because there was no one greater by which to swear by, he swore by his own self. Because he knows that is in his nature it is impossible for him to change and it is impossible for him to lie. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Our Heavenly Father has made promises that before time even began, he secured these promises in the identity of who he is. And he's never broken one in all of eternity. Today, I just want to give you three. Three of the promises made to us by the eternal God, our Father. So let's pick up in, in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read parts of this passage. Now, you need to know this is a long book, and so we're not going to go like we have some of the shorter books where we went verse by verse. We're going to take snippets of the Scripture, and we're going to raise from those snippets a general theme or message from what they are saying to us. So we're going to do that today with the book of Hebrews. Begin at chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now drop down to the second part of verse 4 and it says, After making purification for sin, talking about Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than, than theirs. One of the first promises from our Heavenly Father that we see in Scripture is the eternal confirmation and adoration of the Son. Scripture tells us that he has appointed the Son to be heir over all things. And, and just that appointment of him being son by itself makes him superior to everything, preeminent over everything, including the angels. And so the first statement in this passage that jumps out at me is Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. And I love the way the writer writes this and, and as if God is speaking. He says, so to which of the angels has he ever said, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Now, let me stop for a second because as I was going through this, this passage of Scripture, it occurs to me that, you know, there are some religions that believe that Jesus Christ is nothing but an angel. He's just one of the angels. He is not an angel. He is the son of God, the heir of all things. He says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, and today I've begotten you none? 
or I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. None. Or sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. None of the angels, only to the son. But instead, family, the angels, the angels, Scripture tells us, are ministering spirits sent to minister to the heirs of salvation, the heirs of righteousness. And by the way, that's us. And then the Scripture says that that God has given him a name more excellent than the angels. And of the Son, he says, you are my firstborn. He says, heir to my throne. All the angels are going to worship you. Your throne will be forever and ever. I love how the Apostle Paul puts this in in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, where he talks about the humility of Jesus Christ, where Jesus unrobes himself from glory. He takes off all the benefits of heaven, comes down, and, and, and yields himself, submits himself to manhood, to humanity. No rights, no reputation, no will, no agenda. And Paul says, Jesus says, or God says, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him because of his sacrifice the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Eternal confirmation and adoration of the Son. The second promise is the promise of the eternal power and authority of the Son. In verses 2 and following, we're given four attributes of the authority of Jesus. Let me give you all four. The first is this. He's the creator of all things. If you look at the second half of verse 2, it says, through whom also he created the world, talking about Jesus. And I love how John echoes this in John chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, all things, all things, all things. Everybody say all things. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of all things. You drop down to verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the, the, the radiator of God's glory. You know, I thought, I thought of all the different kinds of illustrations that I could use for radiance. And I was, I was up this morning, I was thinking about some of the young girls in our church like, like Aurelia and, 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 um, and Alexis and, and, and Dennis the Smith little girls, London and Italian. You can't look at these young ladies when they smile at you and without seeing the radiance on their face. And it moves you. It makes you smile, doesn't it? It does. They radiate. I thought about that. He's the radiance of the glory, the glory of God. Some translations substitute the word radiance for reflection, but I believe that's an unfortunate translation because there's a vast difference between the two. I'll give you an illustration. The sun and the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun. We see the moon at night because 
it is reflecting the light of something else. The sun, on the other hand, radiates light and heat because it's the source of both. Jesus Christ is the power source of the glory of God. And he radiates the glory of God. That's just who he is. Number three is he's the exact imprint of his nature. And the expression used here refers to, to, the, to the image on a coin that has been stamped by a die and it leaves a perfect impression, a perfect imprint, a perfect image or representation of the die itself. Hmm. Jesus Christ is the exact physical imprint of the substantive nature of our Father. The exact. And that's why Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, he says, listen, he says, you ask me to, to show you the Father? He says, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here's the point. Jesus is of the same nature of the Father. Yet he's totally distinct in person, existing separately from the Father. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Because just like the die is the tool that leaves its image on the coin, Jesus Christ is the exact tool that God uses to conform us to his image, to make the imprint on us, to imprint us with his very nature. That's awesome, man. Matter of fact, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters and that we are the righteousness of God in him. We have become the children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, predestined, watch this now, predestined to be conformed to his image. Mm. Man, I'm telling you, I don't know how y'all feel, but I'm about ready to run up here, man. Somebody shout glory. Mm. Here's number four. He's the maintainer of the universe. Scripture tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love what theologian Marvin Vincent had to say about this. He says, the word maintain is really a better translation than the word uphold. He said, the word upholds really conveys this, this idea of, of supporting, somehow supporting a burden. While the word maintain implies the act of sustaining something that's in constant movement. Aha! Check this out! Did you know, did you know our universe is moving? Okay, check this out. So the earth is, is, is you know, it's revolving like this. It's like spinning. And then, and then it's, our solar system is like spinning like this, right? But our universe is moving through space at the speed of about 3 million miles an hour. I don't think you heard me. 
our universe. And I think, I think when I did research on this, I think our universe is some like 600 trillion miles from end to end. Our universe is moving through space at the speed of almost 3 million miles an hour. And our universe is just one of millions of universes. Listen, our universe is not even the biggest universe. Our universe might even be one of the smaller universes of hundreds of millions of universes that we can see, not even the ones that we can't see that are all moving through space in divine synchronization by the power of the word of God. I feel like getting my preacher on up here today. <laughs> mm. The maintainer of the universe. In our final section of our passage today, the focus shifts from God's power and authority given to the Son to a promise of caution for us. It's a promise with consequences, family. So, so as, the, as the writer says today, I want you to take heed. This is the consequence of neglecting our great salvation. See, we've been charged with the responsibility to pay close attention to our spiritual condition. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 reads like this. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how? Shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, all while God also bore witnesses, witnessed by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Wow. You know, one of the ancient symbols of the church is a ship or, or a boat. And we see ships all through the Bible and, and really prominently in the New Testament. In the Gospels, time and again, we see Jesus instructing his disciples, you know, and, and, and a lot of it has to do with, with, with boats or ships. You know, at sometimes you tell them, hey, jump in the ship and go fishing. Other times they'll tell them, you know, uh, jump in the ship and go to the other side of the lake. And then sometimes they tell them, jump in the ship and just, and just launch out just a little bit so I can speak to the multitudes from the shoreline. I could just see the boat. Jesus tells the disciples to launch out as he speaks to them from the shoreline, just peaceful as Jesus is talking. But there are other times where being on the boat wasn't as peaceful. Man, I tell you, I, I, I love reading Scripture, man, because sometimes the Scripture, a lot of times the Scripture just leaves things to your imagination. And so I have to imagine that if I was in the boat with Jesus, how I would respond to some things, right? And the Bible tells us that Jesus was in every way tempted just as we were, right? And so 
One of the times where, where the, the sea wasn't so peaceful is that Jesus had told the disciples, he said, I want you to get in the boat, and I want you to go to the other side of the lake, right? And, and the Bible says that as they were going across, a great tempest arose, and the boat began to be filled with water. You get the picture? The boat is filling up with water. It's sinking, right? This is what boggles my mind. Because I think, I think Jesus might have been one of those guys that didn't wake up well. Really, I mean, if you think about it, the boat is, 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 is collapsing under the weight of the water, and Jesus is asleep, you guys. And check this out. I imagine if he didn't wake up well, that the disciples were like, hey, man, we are in peril, guys. We're about to go under. Somebody go wake up Jesus. And it's like, uh-uh, man. I ain't, I ain't waking Jesus up. I'm not. You remember what happened the last time we woke him up? I'm not, I'm not waking him up. Listen, look, 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 look what the Bible says. The Bible says, and the disciples went and woke Jesus up. Right? After the boat was nearly about to sink under the weight of the water, they're like, hey, Jesus, Jesus, look, man, we're about to die. Don't you care if we perish when you wake up, please? All of them. Storm was raging, man. Jesus wakes up. He calms the seas. You know, at the point of this writing, I believe that the church, this, this small yet growing church was, was in a tumultuous time, like a huge storm had, had come over them, and they were literally fighting for their lives, many of them in danger of being overwhelmed by the great waves of persecution. And others were in just as much danger, but it didn't seem as perilous because others were just simply drifting away. You see, families, the enemy's not going to come at those of us who are mature in our faith with a raging sea because we know how to anchor down in a raging sea. We know how to, how to go to the Lord when the storms are raging. But, but what he'll do sometimes is he'll just kind of let us drift away. Hmm. I, think this, I think it's the latter that the, that the author is addressing here. He gives a strong warning for us to pay attention to the good news of Jesus Christ and keep it close to us. Keep that fire burning so we don't drift away. And then he tells us there's no excuse for drifting away. And it's true for us today. The word rings true for us today. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a reminder to all the followers of Jesus Christ. And here's something that I found interesting. The writer doesn't really appear to be too concerned about those who haven't heard the gospel in this writing today. But instead, he's warning those who are already believers, those who, who have embraced the gospel but then somehow neglect or, or ignore or grow cold to its transforming power. It's a concern to those of us who've experienced the greatness and the wonder and the grandeur of the power of the gospel in our lives, and then yet somehow we lose our passion. 
we lose our fervency. We lose that, that passion. And we drift away. That's the picture. And it's the little things, family. That's what I want you to see. It's the little things, the joy snatchers, the time robbers that cause this to happen. And before we know it, our prayer time gets lax. We go days without fervently consuming and dialoguing with God and being in the scriptures. We stop keeping company with those who speak the truth of God into our lives, and we drift. I want to encourage you today. I know the storms of life are real. Just like in the day of the writer, there are problems and their concerns were real, and our problems and our concerns today are very real. And I want to encourage you that what keeps us from drifting away is continuing to pay attention to to Jesus Christ who's in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory that this, this writer tells us that it is this hope that is an anchor for our soul. So in closing, God has spoken to us through his son who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of the being of God. He's spoken to us through the prophets, men and and women of old. He's still speaking today. He spoke through signs and through wonders and through miracles of the Holy Spirit because the heart of God for his people can clearly be seen and expressed through Scripture, and it can clearly be seen and expressed as it is expressed today. This same God who made a promise to us from the very beginning of time to send his son to us, he did. And it's Jesus Christ who is the only person who can bridge the gap that now exists between the perfect world as God created and this sin-filled world that now exists. And so the good news is that Jesus hung on the cross between the two worlds, bridging them back together. And now the ultimate promise keeper invites us to experience this promised new life that can only be found in Christ Jesus.